Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. The young woman on these banners stumbled unknowingly into Ireland's abortion grey area. And these people believe she paid for it with her life. This month marks 10 years since Savita Halapanavar died at Galway University Hospital. At 17 weeks pregnant, she presented to the hospital complaining of back pain, only to be told that she was miscarrying a much-wanted baby. One week later, she was dead. Originally from India, her tragic death has made headlines right throughout the world and it's reopened the debate on what is already a highly emotive and controversial issue. Her death may have passed unnoticed by wider society were it not for the dedication and the persistence of her husband Praveen who fought for answers as to why his young, healthy wife had died. Of course we want to know the truth, you know. Uh, she was fine until, um, uh, you know, we went to the hospital and her condition really started deteriorating. We just want to know why was she left, you know, there in the hospital without uh, enough care. Protests and vigils were held across Ireland, remembering Savita and calling for changes to this country's strict abortion laws. It should never happen to any other person here, not to any of my sisters or daughters or friends in Ireland. It should never happen in this 21st century. Going forward, there should be a change. Ten years on and Savita's name is recognised across the country, her story synonymous with the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment. And what do you think it says about Ireland? Uh, that we're finally uh, in 2018, that we treat uh, women the same because before this we were second-class citizens, we didn't have bodily autonomy and we're finally equal. I'm Conor Pope and this is In The News from The Irish Times. Today, how the death of Savita Halapanavar changed the course of modern Irish history. Kitty, sometimes when a person makes news headlines, for whatever reason, they can be almost dehumanised, becoming a story rather than a person. So maybe can we start with a question about Savita? Who was she? So Savita Yalagi, as she was born, was in Karnataka in southwest India. She was the youngest daughter of the Yalagis, of um, Akhmadevi was her mother and Andanapa was her father. She had two older brothers. She married Praveen Halapanavar. Um, and it was sort of a, not quite an arranged marriage, but through a matrimony website, which are quite widely used in India, they met. And uh, he was living in Ireland at the time and he went back to India to marry his bride and he brought her to Ireland in 2010 to make a life in Galway. She was she had trained as a dentist. She was going through the steps and procedures here in Ireland to get on the register to practice dentistry here. She had sat her exams in the Irish Dentistry, dentistry College and um, was on track to have a professional life, family life here in, in Ireland. And she got pregnant, as we know, um, and that was the beginning of the story. And she was 17 weeks into that much wanted pregnancy, I understand, when she started developing back pain. What happened after she first went to the University College Hospital in Galway City? Okay, so she yeah, started developing quite severe back pain. 
at 17 weeks pregnant and she went to the A&E with Praveen on Sunday the 21st of October 2012 and walked as we now know into the abortion wars of Ireland unwittingly. She uh, presented with the back pain and she was told she was miscarrying the baby. Um, was told it was inevitable that she was miscarry and she was admitted for observation while the while the miscarriage was happening. The miscarriage did not proceed as one would have usually expect and she's the pain got worse and worse and she was anxious to get home because her parents were visiting from India. They were due to go back to India on the Wednesday and she wanted to get back mm. to see them. So she asked for termination of the pregnancy and she first asked, we understand, on the Sunday evening, that evening, and was told that because there was a fetal heartbeat that she would not be able to have a termination of the pregnancy. She asked again on the Monday morning of the ward rounds when Catherine Asprey, her consultant, came to see her, was again told that it wouldn't be possible under Irish law to terminate the pregnancy while there was a fetal heartbeat present. The pain continued, the, the miscarriage wasn't progressing. So um, Praveen went to home on Tuesday to get ready to bring the parents to Dublin to the airport. So she was in the hospital with a friend. She asked again on Tuesday for a termination of the pregnancy. And this was the point where uh, midwife Anne-Marie Burke told her as an act of kindness, really, to try and explain to this Indian Hindu woman why she couldn't have the pregnancy, that it's because this is a Catholic country. So she was by Tuesday night, she was becoming quite ill. Um, By Wednesday morning, um, one of the doctors on his ward round um, suspected she had sepsis. That didn't get relayed, that suspicion, to her consultant until two o'clock the following af- that afternoon, by which stage she was uh, really very ill. She spontaneously delivered a female fetus, whom she named Prasa, and she went into a coma then and was taken to the high dependency unit on Wednesday. Deteriorated further Wednesday, Thursday transferred to intensive care, deteriorated, deteriorated. Saturday, um, she was extremely ill indeed. Her heartbeat went kind of very chaotic and she didn't have a pulse. That was about midnight on Saturday. They started compressions. She died at nine minutes past one on the 28th of October, the morning, 2012. When did you first hear about that story, that terrible, terrible story? So I got a call early November about it from some people who had been contacted by the Indian community in Galway. They were pro-choice activists. They had started having stalls on Shop Street in Galway because there was a quite a, a gearing up to um, campaign for legislation on the X case. It was the 20th anniversary of the X case. Um, so some members of the Indian community had spotted them and kind of went to them for answers and said, this happened, like, what's the situation? When they heard what had happened, they obviously realised this was a quite a serious event and they were going to put out a press release on it. Then one of them decided, no, actually, we should just tell one journalist and I got a call, a call about it. So I travelled down to Galway the following day and met with the two of the activists who were actually students in UCG and they brought me out to Spiddle where there was a Dr Prasad who was a friend of Savita and Praveen. Praveen at that stage was back in India, having brought Vita home for her funeral. Um, and he gave me the number of Praveen and I spoke to Praveen from Spiddle by mobile phone. And he told me the story of what happened to his wife. On Tuesday night, 
things really started getting worse. She was uh, all of a sudden feeling cold. She was in, she started shivering terribly. And, um, and what did Praveen tell you? Well, he told me exactly as we reported then in the Irish Times on the 14th of November that uh, they had presented a 17 weeks pregnant that he she'd asked and he'd asked repeatedly for termination they wouldn't terminate um she got sicker and sicker one the midwife and nurse asked me if uh, i had told her family back home and um, basically Savita didn't want to let her parents know until they have landed there you know and uh, i said yes i just told them that she's still in the hospital and she's fine doing well and um i only told them about uh, the miscarriage and uh, she's fine so i just told her she said uh, no you have to tell them um, that she is critically ill and uh, you know she said it's better that her parents and uh, you know all her family knows about it she fell into a coma and she died eventually and as far as he and her family and her friends were concerned they felt that if she had had the termination, she would have survived and she would be alive today. And for him, it must have been like incomprehensible what had happened to his wife. He just couldn't understand it. And his, uh, you know, abortion was legalised in India in 1971. This was seen as very straightforward health care, as it would be have been at the time across most of Europe as well. And... Yeah, he was. They were just bewildered, and I don't think they realised how they didn't realise how big a, a story it was, or how big a momentous an event it was in Irish political and social life. I mean, I remember him saying, "Would it make the paper? Like, did did he think? Did I think it was a story?" And I was sort of reassuring him, "Yes, it was a very serious story because you know, apart from anything, even it, if it didn't have all those all the social and political dimensions that we knew and now know, you know, a woman had died, a healthy mm-hmm. woman had gone into hospital." and died and it would have been a story no matter what. This evening, protesters are assembling outside the Dáil to demand... The sheer numbers of people who took to the streets of Dublin for the vigil... I came out here tonight because it is to our shame that this happened and I'm, I'm both sad and very angry and that's why I brought the candle because I didn't really want to shout today. I wanted just to express my solidarity with it. And then almost as soon as you broke that story in the middle of November of 2012, it became clear that it was kind of a watershed moment and that Irish opinion on abortion and on repealing the Eighth Amendment in particular was changing. There was thousands of people who attended a vigil in her memory and the anger about the circumstances surrounding her death just kept on growing. What do you think it was about the particular details of this tragedy that struck a chord with so many people so quickly? Well, I mean, I suppose we'd had, you know, we'd had so many cases of of abortion tragedies, if Mm. you like, over the preceding, um, like since 1983, you know, the first big one being the 1992 X case where the suicidal 14 year old girl who was pregnant was denied determination and it ended up in the Supreme Court. She was a 14 year old girl who had been left with a friend's family while her parents went on a pilgrimage to Lourdes. Her friend's father, a close neighbour, raped her and she became pregnant. The girl's family brought her to England to have an abortion, asking local guardie to find out if a sample of foetal tissue could be used as evidence of paternity in a case against the abuser. The question was referred up to the Attorney General, who took the view that he had an obligation to prevent the abortion taking place, 
given the commitment... And the so that brought thousands of people onto the street. We had other cases then. We had the C case, we had the D case, we had Miss D, we had ABC versus Ireland. We had, yeah, we had a myriad of alphabet soup of, of cases. But in this case, and I suppose an awful lot of people felt intellectually, you know, it's wrong and there's unfinished business on the abortion. We really should do something about it. And, you know, Europe, the European Court of Human Rights was saying we should do something about it. And the United Nations was saying we should. We all knew something had to be done. And everyone kind of, I suppose, felt in some way the abortion business is not resolved. But this turned what was, I think, a kind of a quite an intellectual argument into a very emotional argument. And people really identified with... Um, because they had her picture, they had her name, we had the circuit, and she died. It's, you know, it's not that she'd been denied an abortion and it had been really difficult and harrowing for her. She had actually died. And I think a lot of people were worried that that could happen to them, that that could happen to someone they love. It was very um, relatable. It was Praveen as well. I mean, Praveen, her husband, he went on the news at one on RT radio the day that we broke the story. Um, on uh, Saturday, uh uh, the nurse came running. I was just standing outside the ICU. She, she just told me to be brave and uh, she took me near Savita and she said, uh, will you be okay to be there during her last few minutes? And uh, I said, yes, I want to. I was holding her hand. They were trying to pump her heart, you know, through a big team around the doctor just told me that um, just lost her. He was so softly spoken. He was so gentle. He was so he wasn't kind of banging his fists on the table and effing and blinding. And, you know, and I think that touched an awful lot of men in particular, because, you know, so most men in this country have been in a labor ward at some point, you know, and in hoping everything's going to be OK. So I think he really touched people. Um, so it, you know, it was a very emotional uh, reaction. People were so sad. People were ashamed. People were shocked. People were horrified. And I think a lot of people who knew intellectually, instinctively, something to do, it just kind of went, "That's it. That you were not taking this anymore. Something has to be done." And I, you know, I spoke to people like Orla O'Connor and Alva Smith, and they said they really knew at that point that. This is it now. This is crunch time. You know, this cannot happen again. And that sadness and shock and the tears that we saw at the vigil on the Wednesday night turned very quickly to anger. Mm -hmm. And that was on the streets three days later on the Saturday when up to 20,000 people took the streets and roared never again, never again, never again. So it galvanised, it brought people in, people who'd never been on a march before, who really want, to, who just felt we have to do something about this. And the National Women's Council said that they, for the first time ever, were getting calls from people, including men, saying, what can I do? We have to change this. I think there was a lot of underlying sense that, you know, the abortion situation needed to be dealt with, but it just sparked and people just kind of, it, it spilled out onto the streets that people felt they had to, they had to do something about it. Kenny says he's not going to be rushed on the matter. This man has some definition of being rushed. This political pygmy has sat in Dáil Éireann for over 30 years while 150 
Now, I think Enda Kenny was Taoiseach at the time and Micheál Martin would have been leader of the opposition. Were politicians in lockstep with the public in calling for change immediately? I mean, I seem to remember that there was some reluctance on the behalf of the political classes to make any definitive statements. And maybe that was for so many years, abortion rights had been like the third rail of Irish politics that politicians just never wanted to go near. Well, it was so toxic, you know, and you, in every, and as even with, you know, the, the, the lead up to the eighth referendum, people were getting hate mail and, you know, so people, yeah, they didn't want to go near it. They didn't want to deal with it. It was not a vote winner. It was a vote loser. But that's how it was seen. But certainly, like, I remember the day the story broke, people who were avowedly pro-life. Now we're talking Regina Doherty, Simon Harris, Leo Varadkar, Charlie Flanagan, you know, people who had been looking for assurances that there would be no abortion brought into Ireland only less than a year beforehand, saying suddenly they were reconsidering their position. Like Regina Doherty saying, I am pro-life, but I'm also pro my own life and pro my daughter's lives. So I think, you know, it, it politicians weren't in step. They were scrabbling to catch up, um, as is so often the case with social issues. But, you know, boy, they did, you know, they did catch up. And it, I mean, a referendum wasn't called for another six years and there was a battle to get that referendum. But, you know, the, the mood was clear that something had to be done. I remember Eamon Gilmore saying, you know, doing nothing is not an option. He was the leader of the mm. Labour Party at the time. So, yeah, I mean, politicians that were, they caught up. Anger is growing in Ireland over the death of a young woman who was denied an abortion. The pregnant woman was gravely ill. And what about the whole international reaction? I mean, you mentioned that you'd anticipated that it would be covered maybe by the BBC or The Guardian and it would be picked up in a, in a few select media organisations in other countries. But the international reaction was absolutely enormous, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I mean, within like that morning, the story broke. I remember I was obviously getting calls from the Irish media, but immediately, you know, from Sky News, Sky had a live link that morning mm, um, from from Dublin talking about about it. The American press the next day, they're a few hours behind, but they were they were clamoring to talk about. It. I suppose you know, abortion everywhere particularly in countries where it's a contested issue, is a very interesting news story. And, you know, in America, it has always been a contested issue. And we see with Roe versus Wade um, how contested that can be. And in, in India, I think the religious dimension really fascinated them there. And of course, it was one of, you know, it was their woman who had, had died. So it was, yeah, it, would, it got huge coverage. I was you know, interviewed on Indian television, American television, Australian television, um, CNN. So it went around the world. Mm. And what about after the fact then? Because there was obviously multiple inquiries following the death of Savita carried out by the hospital. The HSE carried out an inquiry. HICWA carried out an inquiry. And there were others. What did we learn from all of those inquiries? I mean, what was the upshot of them all? Well, the upshot of them all was that the the main one i suppose was that the law was chilling had a chilling effect on doctors ability to provide the full panoply of obstetric care particularly in emergencies but there were also issues with the recognition of sepsis with the um the reporting of results from tests and that kind of thing there were problems with that in the hospital there was issues about staffing so so there were many aspects of how savita was failed but it all, you know, came back to if she'd had the abortion when she asked of, asked of it, none of these 
issues would have kicked in to fail her. Kitty, you mentioned that there was a gap between uh, the death of Savita and the repeal of the 8th. How long did it take for political parties to catch up with the public mood? Well, I mean, as I was saying, on the day and in the weeks afterwards and the, you know, the outpouring of emotion and rage and anger, there was a, I think, a catching up, if you like, immediately. And, you know, we heard conservative politicians saying they were reconsidering their views. So I think there was quite a big shift quickly. But, you know, I suppose no politician, particularly on an issue so delicate and so politically toxic and difficult and fraught, are they going to jump to, you know, make big sweeping changes? So we had, there was an Oroctus committee where we heard from lots of experts and they they made recommendations that it, a citizens' assembly be held. It's just the citizens' assembly sat, it came back with quite surprisingly radical, it seemed, recommendations. They said there should be, you know, abortion request actually up to 14 weeks. They um, look, looked at the idea of um, the fatal fetal abnormalities and how that they should be better catered for. And then there was a further Oroctus Committee on how to enact the recommendations. And I suppose a very kind of crucial moment for that was when Michal Martin got up. For these reasons, and following a long period of reflection and assessment of evidence before the Oireachtas Committee, I believe that we should remove the Eighth Amendment from Bunrach Naherden, and I will vote accordingly. So, I mean, there's slow, methodical, steady progress, nothing done too hastily. And I suppose that's how politics kind of slowly heaves around to come to where the people are that with the, you know, the comfort of committees and recommendations, that kind of thing. So, I mean, there were delays, you would say, but that's, I suppose, how politics works. Votes in favour of the proposal. 1,429,981. And then I suppose in 2018, the referendum on repealing the Eighth Amendment was carried by a majority of two to one. Do you think so many people would have backed the repeal movement had it not been for the death of Savita Halapanavar? No, I don't. And 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 I and it wasn't just Savita, but I think it's what Savita started, you know. And so first of all there was the outpouring of of all that emotion that we talked about and you know when you know when people feel things in their hearts, it's more powerful than when they just feel it in their minds and you know people really are galvanized and and mo- and motivated to do something and to get involved in all the groups and you know we had but what it really I think what Savita's death did was immediately it prompted women to start talking about their experiences. And Archie's live line that day, in the days after the story broke, was just filled with women calling in, talking about their their near misses in hospitals, their, their reasons they had to travel, the fatal fetal abnormalities. And then we had people like our colleague Roshi Ningle coming out and talking about her abortion experience. And it was those women's stories, as with, you know, the um, marriage equality referendum, that really shifted hard and minds, I think. So I think without Savita, her death was so unnecessary that, yeah, delivered repeal. I don't, it wouldn't have happened without her. And then I suppose the next question is what happens next? Because I, I know you've spoken to Orla O'Connor and Peter Boylan and Alva Smith, and, and they've spoken about how the current legislation isn't fit for purpose. And there are still many women who have to travel to the UK for terminations. What are they hoping to change 
about the current legislation and how the system in this country currently operates. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, one thing I think it is important to say is that there would be a considerable constituency out there who think the current legislation goes too far and that, it, you know, and that it needs to come back and be more restrictive. Um, so we must acknowledge that and, you know, their voice is important too. But the majority voice, I suppose, which was the two thirds who voted for women not to have to travel, for people, women with fatal fetal abnormalities to not have to, to get the care they need. They're, I suppose, the two um, main tranches that people would feel need to still be addressed. Um, so speaking to Peter Boylan and the and Alva Smith and Orla O'Connor, the three day wait period when a woman currently under the legislation, when she goes to her GP and asks for an abortion, must wait three days. There's a feeling that that infantilizes women, infantilizes doctors, delays things unnecessarily. That's an issue that um, needs to be dealt with. The other one is the very overly prescriptive and criminalising um, definition of when someone with a fatal fetal anomaly can access a termination in Ireland. Under the current legislation, the doctors must be certain that the fetus would die within 28 days of birth. Um, and in an awful lot of cases, they can't be certain. So cases you know, where they might live... 30 days or three months or um, longer cannot be catered for and they're still having to travel. And the other big one is the, is the 12-week time limit. And there's a feeling that that is arbitrary, that it's not based on good medical rationale and that if you're 12 weeks and three days, you should still have access to a termination on request. So there's a feeling that the sense uh, that the time limit on the abortion on request needs to be extended or perhaps even lifted altogether and that the decision should be made on, you know, kind of medical grounds between a woman and her doctor. Well, one last memory would be, you know, she, she said to me that, um, uh, you know, she never felt um, what a motherhood would be like, you know, when she was in the hospital, you know, when the miscarriage took place. And uh, she just held my hand and said, you know, uh, why didn't we plan this earlier? It's it's an, such an amazing feeling. And she said she understands now how is it like, you know, to be a mother. Ten years since Vita Halep Hanover died, and it would be fair to say that her legacy is that she significantly changed the course of modern Irish history. Would that be right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think you know one of the most moving um, outpourings of emotion, I suppose, on the day that repeal was announced, that we had this kind of rapturous joy in in the courtyards of, of Dublin Castle, but just up at Portobello, we had this Svita mural. And some of the notes that were put on it, uh, people were leaving little notes and laying flowers, that kind of thing. And they were all saying, thank you, Savita, and I'm sorry, Savita. And one of the ones that I felt was just so touching was, we're sorry we weren't there when you needed us. We didn't forget you were here now. And I just thought, I just think that's really sums up that she very much was in people's hearts and minds when they went into the ballots boxes and voted yes for repeal. Kitty Holland, thank you very much for talking to us. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Suzanne Brennan, Aideen Finnegan and Declan Conlon. We'll be back on Monday.